Thank you for listening to Fund the People, a podcast with me, Rusty Stahl. For 20 years, I've supported leadership development for foundation and nonprofit professionals. In 2014, I started my organization, Fund the People, the national campaign to maximize investment in the nonprofit workforce. Now we've launched this podcast to amplify how and why philanthropy should invest in nonprofit people. Do you love nonprofit work, but find yourself frustrated by the starvation cycle, the overhead myth, the racial and economic inequity, and the toxic burnout culture that dampens our effectiveness? Do you want to see change, but you're not sure how to address these harmful, outdated mental models and practices or what to replace them with? then this is the podcast for you. Every episode, I sit down with fascinating thought leaders from across our sector to gather stories, research, and practical resources that you can use to ensure that nonprofit people are at the center of performance, impact, and sustainability in your organization or the organizations that you support. So let's dive in together as we learn how to fund the people. Welcome to episode four of the Fund the People podcast. I hope you, your family, and your colleagues are safe and sound. It's mid-October 2020, so remember, this Halloween, be spooky but safe. Wear a mask, maintain your distance, and wash your hands a lot. I've got two young kids at home, and I think we will be booing in the backyard with a few of their school friends. Also, a quick reminder, be sure to vote. You can check out nonprofitvote.org to ensure that your nonprofit offers paid time off for staff to go vote. Vote early, vote by mail, vote in person. However you do it, vote. Make sure your voice is heard. Speaking of the value of our voices, too often in our nonprofit sector, people talk about nonprofit leaders like we ourselves are walking, talking deficits, empty vessels needing to be filled with competencies and leadership abilities and knowledge that we don't have. Too often, the cost of compensating employees is discussed as quote unquote overhead when it is actually the bedrock upon which programs and services are built. The truth is, my friends, that the nonprofit workforce is the greatest asset for our nonprofit organizations, for our funding community, heck, for our country. Despite all of the challenges we face, nonprofit people are powerful, skilled, visionary, driven, and enduring. So during season one of this show, I want to acknowledge and celebrate the human strength of our sector as a baseline for discussing the challenges we face and the solutions that we create for those challenges. Toward that end, on this episode, I talk with one of the premier scholars of nonprofit employment and economics, Dr. Lester M. Solomon of Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Solomon discusses the findings of the latest report out from his center on the overall strength and stability of nonprofit employment, as well as initial estimates about the impact of the pandemic recession on nonprofit employment. It's clear from the data that he shares that nonprofit jobs are a major contributor to overall employment in America and to the quality of life in America. And this remains an underrecognized fact among policymakers, journalists, academics, funders, and in fact by nonprofit leaders ourselves. So this is an important conversation with some really good information that you can use to educate yourself, your board, your donors, and other stakeholders. Before we get started, let me give you some background on our guest. Dr. Lester Solomon is a professor at Johns Hopkins University and director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civil Society Studies. 
along with other previous high-level positions at Johns Hopkins and the Aspen Institute, Dr. Solomon served as Deputy Associate Director of the U.S. Office of Management and Budget in the Executive Office of the President. Solomon pioneered the empirical study of the nonprofit sector in the U.S. and has extended this work to other parts of the world. Author of more than 20 books, his America's Nonprofit Sector, A Primer, is the standard text used in college-level courses about the sector in the U.S. Dr. Solomon received a bachelor's degree in economics and policy studies from Princeton and his PhD in government from Harvard. He's chairman emeritus of the Community Foundation of the Chesapeake and serves on the editorial boards of several scholarly journals. Among the numerous interesting research initiatives that Dr. Solomon and the center have established, in our conversation we focus on the Nonprofit Economic Data Project. This project has developed a way to tap into an enormously rich body of official U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data, providing important new insights into nonprofit employment trends and allowing scholars to track the health and viability of nonprofits and communities across the country. So here's my conversation with Lester Solomon. Welcome, Dr. Lester Solomon, to the podcast. So happy to have you here. Well, it's my pleasure to do so. I always like to start by asking folks, um, tell us a little bit about your professional journey. How did you end up being a scholar of you know, philanthropy in the nonprofit sector? Where did you grow up? Uh, what was your journey like? Well, my journey is curious, uh, maybe like all journeys, uh, and my involvement in the nonprofit sector is probably largely accidental, not completely. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, went away to school for four years uh, in the midst of the early 60s, uh, started graduate school in uh, at Harvard and became a dropout uh, after a year and a half because I was just uh, impressed by the civil rights movement that was going on in Mississippi. And I had an opportunity to go to Mississippi as a teacher at a black college, uh, thanks to the Woodrow Wilson Foundation. And uh, in the course of that, really changed my academic focus in a way that did have resonance with the nonprofit sector. I was uh, on my way to India before I dropped out uh, to study the only case of a, of a communist revolution in India, the Telangana Peasant Revolt. And I went down to Mississippi instead. And as I was uh, thinking about the reality I was experiencing, I discovered that there was a peasant revolt going on right here in our own country. Uh, there were huge landowners and there was a uh, a peasantry that was being exploited terribly. And I ended up writing my dissertation, uh, my PhD dissertation on Mississippi as a developing country. And I used uh, theories uh, that I had studied at, at Harvard in graduate school, particularly a theory that's called social origins theory that looks to the power of elites as the fundamental stimulant for the emergence of or the lack of emergence of nonprofit institutions. Um, one of my chapters in the thesis was a study of uh, the emergence of the nonprofit sector and the civil rights movement in three counties in Mississippi, trying to figure out why in one county it was so powerful and in several other counties it was much less powerful. And I argued that the difference had to do with land ownership, which brought independence for a through a black farmers in one of these counties, and that was an element of power. At any rate, I then went on from that experience. I finished my PhD. I went to uh, teach in uh, Vanderbilt and then Duke, and then was recruited to come into the U.S. government uh, as the deputy associate director for the Office of Management and Budget, one of the major, the major staff arm of the presidency. Um, and uh, I had been teaching a course on 
basically the policy process in American government. And in four years of in being in the federal government, I came to the conclusion that what we were teaching our students about the nature of the policy process was simply misleading and was missing an important element that had really fundamentally altered the whole character of government. The government was doing very little itself. It was using massively third parties to deliver publicly funded services. So our entire housing program, for example, was being delivered by commercial banks with, with terrible results because they were using redlining to keep uh, undesirable people from getting loans. But we had outsourced the whole housing program and policy of the US government beginning in the 1930s. This was not something new. And on and on, and in the midst of the 1960s now, um, there was a massive expansion of the government's use of these third parties. And in particular, it focused on nonprofit organizations. And so I, when I left the government in 19, I guess, 86, somewhere around there, uh, no, 1980, I guess, um, I went to the Urban Institute and I was given the role of managing a a set of set of programs in the Urban Institute, a think tank in Washington, focused on essentially governance and the operation of the government. And the focus of my research was on these tools of government. And basically the basic argument was that we are massively using third party tools, tools that are indirect. The government's not doing things. It's outsourcing, either through grants or through contracts or through regulation or through vouchers, um, that this was tra had transformed government. Um, and I gave uh, a seminar on this in, I think, must have been 1980 at the Brookings Institution. And I happened to use as an example, but just as an example of this phenomenon, the massive use the government had begun to make during the Great Society era of nonprofit institutions. Um, our health policy totally dependent on nonprofit institutions. There were nonprofit hospitals that were the vehicle for delivering Medicare. It was not government hospitals. And uh, the same thing in the social service arena. And I developed the first estimates of the scale of that government support going to nonprofits. And guess what? Um, it was bigger than philanthropy by a factor of four to one. Uh, it was 40% of the income of the sector versus about 10% for philanthropy. And yet nobody realized the scale of government support. And it just so happened that in the audience was the head of the newly formed independent sector, uh, Brian O'Connell. And Brian came to me afterwards. I was at the Urban Institute, and that is a uh, soft money research outfit, so you have to raise funding for your research. And Brian uh, asked me if I could prepare an analysis of the scope of government funding of nonprofits to be delivered at the first meeting of independent sector, which was in 1980, as you, you may remember, sort of at the end of the, um, of the Carter administration and the incoming of uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, and Ronald Reagan was running around the country saying, don't worry, nonprofits, and don't worry, poor people. Uh, uh, we're going to cut the government's spending, but philanthropy will fill the gap. And that was the mantra that they were that they were selling. Um, and um, Brian O'Connell was kind enough to give me six weeks to do this job for the first time to come up with an estimate. <laughs> I mean, the idea that this was a sector that had an economic footprint, that was like completely out the door. Uh, this was a little piddling thing in the mind of most people, financed by philanthropy, pretty small potatoes, certainly not an economic force. And we began to spin tapes that came from the uh, Treasury Department and the IRS, and we discovered that this was a huge economic force and that the financing of it was totally misunderstood. And so I delivered this the way I would have delivered a briefing to the president when I was in the Office of Management and Budget. I had charts, I had graphs, I had pictures, and it blew the crowd away. You know, basically, it blew the crowd away. We got a front page story in the New York Times. Suddenly, I was the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. 
uh, I was the only one that had any data on the nonprofit sector. And suddenly, my entire research agenda completely was turned on its head. Instead of looking at tools of government across a broad front, I became the focal point of all the data generated on the nonprofit sector in the country. We launched the Urban Institute Nonprofit Sector Project. Uh, we worked with uh, researchers all across the country. We brought the country into eight different regions. We launched surveys and we put together the first empirical base of the scale of the sector in different regions and different counties. And then uh, ultimately I left the Urban Institute and went to the uh, Johns Hopkins University in part because the Urban Institute was still focused on U.S. and I became fascinated by the fact that this sector may have a footprint also elsewhere in the world. We were beginning to see the growth of the sector, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s across the world, and nobody had any data, nobody had any sense of the scale. And so we launched the Johns Hopkins Comparative Nonprofit Sector Project, uh, started in about five countries, it quickly grew to 12, it ultimately grew to 42 countries, literally around the world, every single continent, every single religious tradition. And once again, we released these results and everybody was just flabbergasted by it, particularly since European integration was proceeding there and the nonprofit sector was completely left out of the discussion. And we were able to show that in many countries in Europe, the sector was not only kind of big, but it was bigger than it is in the US. That is the workforce of the nonprofit sector um, in places like the Netherlands or Germany was larger as a share of the total employment in those countries than it was in the United States. And wow. here we had been selling Europeans on how foolish they were to have created a welfare state, whereas we brilliant Americans had created a uh, very different notion of relying on philanthropy and charity, and our system was therefore better, when in fact, neither of those points was correct. We had not created <laughs> something relying on charity, and they had built a massive nonprofit sector, much more heavily financed by the state, but very much with the delivery of the services left to nonprofit institutions. And um, you, and, and somewhere in doing this research, you created the Center for Civil Society Studies at Johnson. Right, because we created a, a um, we created the first research group in the world. We recruited associates in every country. Uh, we did it in the U.S., and so we created uh, the research community. If you look at the origins of NVSQ or the uh, ARNOVA, or you look at ISTAR, the International Society for Third Sector Research, the people who started that were the researchers in the Johns Hopkins Comparative Nonprofit Sector Project. And from there, we went on to take the measurement idea into the U.S. government, uh, into the uh, United Nations, and penetrated the system of national accounts because we found that the existing global statistical system, the official statistical system, simply did a very poor job of reflecting the scale of this sector. So we were launched in a major uh, body of work that really created the entire discipline of nonprofit studies. Wow. It's, it's fascinating to hear how these twists and turns in life and, you know, you present this thing that's just... An example, and all of a sudden it becomes this yeah. uh, new area of study. And I was first introduced to your work, uh, I guess, in 1998 or 99, as a, a student, a fellow of Robert Payton's at mm. Indiana University, and where I got exposed to the, the the framing and scale and scope of the sector and its relationship to the for-profit and, and government. And so I'm, you know, appreciative of all the work that you are laying out that, that you did. And I wanted folks to hear kind of that history because sometimes I hear people say, oh, all of a sudden there are these graduate programs yeah. in nonprofit management or philanthropy. And it's it's really been something evolving over 40, 50 years right, um, right. Of, of study. So there's a, there's a big difference between our work and some of the work that, that Bob Payton was involved in. Um, that work is still very much philanthropy oriented. 
Yeah. Ours is nonprofit organization oriented. And these worlds are, are somewhat different. And uh, unfortunately, there's, there's a kind of tendency to default back to just focusing on philanthropy and believing that that is the end all and be all of the sector. And it is important. I don't demean it, but it is not, it's, it's not, it's 10% and 90% of the revenue is coming from someone else. The sector grew in the sixties precisely because of the growth of government support. It was the great society that triggered the growth of the U.S. nonprofit sector, made it what it is today. Mm. Look at it in the 50s, it was tiny. It was was philanthropy-centered. But if you looked at it in the 70s or early 80s, which is when I encountered it, it was already a behemoth, but that behemoth was created by the Great Society program. Interesting. I think Peyton's framing, he uses the term philanthropy and it gets confused with because sometimes, because so often the word philanthropy gets analogized or equated with foundations or giving or donors um, or grant making. And he, he really saw he, it as voluntary giving, voluntary service, and voluntary association. So I think it was a poor choice of terminology in some ways for what he wanted it to be about. But yeah. pulling on this theme that you've outlined of the both the economic scale and sort of power, if you will, of the sector in different contexts. You have this, you've been doing all this research over the years and it's sort of accumulated. And the the latest thing for the U.S. focused work is this 2020 nonprofit employment report. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I wanted to introduce folks to some of your, your five key findings and then the the estimations, the thinking that you've started to do about the pandemic's uh, economic impact on nonprofits. So I'd love to just walk through, you know, even briefly some of these findings. So let's not go into methodology, but you could say, you know, what what the numbers represent in terms of years and that kind of thing. Well, let me, uh, I guess I'd like to just make clear to people the way we got into this work. We are, our team is very lazy. We do not like to go out and create data. And so we look for data that's already been created, but that is being obscured. Mm-hmm. And we found it in the case of the international work in statistical agencies that are obliged to already collect data on the nonprofit sector, but then they bury most of the sector in the, in the corporate sector. And then we found that the same thing was happening in the U.S. statistics on employment. Uh, we have this thing called the Quarterly Census of Employment and Wages. It covers 97% of all nonprofit workforce. But uh, when the BLS reports on the workforce in the United States, you never hear about the nonprofit sector. All you hear about is the business sector. But the business sector in the BLS data includes the nonprofit sector. And so we basically went to the BLS and said, listen, this is terrible. You're missing an important sector because you're just throwing it into this big bucket that is called business and people aren't seeing it. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got them to agree to let us go into their computers and we merged a database from the IRS, which identified nonprofit institutions and their employer identification number with a similar number that was in the QCEW. And suddenly we opened an enormous treasure chest of data without going out in the field and having to do all these research studies, which would have taken years and years and years. We just opened it up and there it was. And so we have for the last 10 or 15 years been producing reports, state reports and national reports on this nonprofit workforce. So what have we found? First of all, we found that as of 2017, This was the third largest workforce of any of the 18 industries that the economists break an economy down among. Um, And most dramatically, I think, understanding in the understanding of people in general, it's larger than the manufacturing workforce. And I'm talking about all of manufacturing, you know, not just one or two industries, but it's the entire, you know, it's automobiles, it's electronics, it's you know, machinery, it's everything. 
Um, and yet the nonprofit workforce, the number of people working full-time equivalent workers, uh, even without including volunteer workers, is bigger than is in manufacturing. And this is not just in, in one or two states. Half of the, more than half the states have more nonprofit workers than they have manufacturing workers. And we spend a lot of time in this country in our policy arenas thinking about how we can strengthen manufacturing when here we have another sector that is even bigger than manufacturing and is, as I'll show, is growing more rapidly. Uh, and so just this, this little bit of data, and this has been our message, let's get data. Let's, let's not just sit here spinning our uh, theories. Let's, let's go for data. Uh, and it's the third largest overall, but if you look at particular fields, it's much bigger than that. Um, you know, if you look in, in uh, education, if you take private education, 71% of the employment is in nonprofits. If you take private hospitals, 84% are nonprofits. Uh, social assistance has fallen a bit, uh, but it's still 41% uh, nonprofit. So this is the second key finding that we report in this in this report. The third finding is that, uh, as would be expected, it's also the third largest generator of wages. Uh, and wages, of course, translate into tax revenue for local governments, uh, particularly income taxes, um, but other kinds of taxes as well. So the idea that this is a freeloading sector uh, applies only to the uh, income of the organizations but those organizations push those revenues out to workers, and those workers, of course, pay their normal taxes. And so this is a sector that's producing enormous financial income for, uh, for local governments. And similarly, in that economic scale of things, we took issue with the common belief that nonprofit wages are below for-profit wages. That belief is true if you compare nonprofit wages to the overall average wages in the economy. That is, if you take no account of the industries. But there are vast differences in the wages of different industries based on investments in those industries, technology in those industries, demand for the products, the ability to pay for the products. Um, so the real appropriate way to measure the nonprofit versus for-profit wages are to look industry by industry. How are nonprofits doing in the same industries as for-profits are involved in? And when you do that, guess what? It turns out that the private wages, the nonprofit wages, I'm sorry, are higher than the for-profit wages in a whole host of these industries. And we're talking about social services, we're talking about um, healthcare, we're talking about education. Uh, these are areas where the nonprofit workforce is getting paid better than the for-profit workforce in the same field. And while our data don't talk about the benefits, we've done other research which suggests that the benefits are also frequently better in the for-profit uh, arena. So. Uh, that's not to say we shouldn't be trying to boost the wages of nonprofits. We should be boosting the wages of all service workers, um, particularly human, human service workers. But um, the for-profits are taking better care. I mean, the nonprofits are taking better care of their workers than are the for-profits. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the third finding on generation of wages and how do the wages compare to the private firms. A fourth uh, focus of this report, the 2020 report, as of previous reports, um, looks at the changes in the growth of these uh, sectors. Um, and what we find is that this nonprofit sector has been one of the most dynamic sectors in terms of addition of new, way, new, new workers. Uh, when you think about it, this is comparing nonprofit workers total to for-profit workers total in the economy. So it takes care of all the industries in this case. We don't just look at the industries where the two are combined in, in this step. Um, so it makes a lot of sense when you realize that we have become a service economy. 
the nonprofit sector is heavily a service sector. So the fact that people are getting older, that we're investing in human services, that we're improving healthcare or trying to, um, nonprofits are positioned to benefit from those increases and they have therefore grown much more rapidly. And it's, it's not trivial. Uh, our calculations show that between 2007 and 2017, so from before the uh, economic crisis of 2009, um, until this, this last year or two years ago, which is our latest data, nonprofit employment grew by 18.6%. Total employment, private employment in the economy grew by only 6%. And one of the reasons for that is that the nonprofits did not cut as sharply during the recession period as did the for-profits. For-profits went into a real nosedive following the fiscal financial crisis. Nonprofit workers were protected. Uh, nonprofit uh, managers really did everything they could imagine to avoid cutting wages, cutting uh, workers, uh, because they were committed to the mission of the organizations. And this is a very striking pattern that we're not sure is recurring in the coronavirus period, but um, it's something to keep our eye on. So dynamic, uh, dynamic sector. Then the final point that we acknowledge in this report is that notwithstanding the growth of nonprofits in this uh, service sector, there has been a diminishment, a reduction of its market share. Essentially, what's happening, I believe, is that government has turned increasingly to these indirect tools, these tools that turn to the market uh, for support. So they've replaced, for example, grant programs, which go to organizations, with programs that provide assistance to uh, people in general, uh, directly to people. Mm. These take the form of vouchers. So Medicaid is a voucher. You get a you get a little ticket, and a, or a card, and you can use it in any place that you want to use it in, um, or you get a tax break, which goes to the individual, and again. The tax break can be used for any kind of uh, entity. And what's happened is that because of their access to capital, to investment, the for-profits have been able to move in whenever there is kind of an explosion of government funding. Uh, this happened very dramatically after uh, 1980, when for the first time home health care became a Medicaid-eligible mm. use. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially, Medicaid was now available to cover the cost of home health care. Well, suddenly overnight, I mean, in three to five years, there was a flurry of creation of home health care for-profit entities moved into those markets, very skilled at marketing. Nonprofits are not terribly efficient at marketing. And before we knew it, we went from an industry that was 80% nonprofit dominated to an industry that is now 80% for-profit dominated. Wow, total flip. So, it was a total flip, and uh, that's happened in a variety of fields. Daycare would be another one because we have a daycare tax benefit that is twice, three, four, five times bigger than our daycare grant programs. Interesting. It's uh, funded by social service block grants. And so many of those th examples you're giving are things that really ought, you know, one could argue ought to be mission-driven, not-for-profit uh, right. services. That's right. And this this becomes very significant when you have an economic downturn, because, as I mentioned, the for-profits are very market sensitive. So when the economy tanks, they're out of there. They just close the shop, uh, leaving dependent people uh, without services. The for-profits tend to stay the course. And you mean so the nonprofits? The nonprofits, I'm sorry, uh, stay the course. So, this shift in the pattern of delivery between nonprofits and for profits has, I think, negative consequences, both for the workforce in the service fields and for the recipients of their of their benefits. And so, I'm going to be eager to find out whether the nonprofits persisted in this uh, pattern 
versus the for-profits in the coronavirus era. Mm. So anyway, uh, massive workforce, significant dynamic, production of income for uh, local governments, um, wages that are best of class in their fields, uh, dynamic uh, sector, and we need to take it more seriously than we do. The whole country needs to take it more seriously than it does. We need to stop thinking of it as the sideshow. It's the third largest workforce in our economy. It's massive. Um, and it deserves to be focused on and to be treated better. Well said. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk a little bit about the p- pandemic before we wrap up. Fund the People podcast is brought to you by Fund the People, the national campaign to maximize investment in America's nonprofit workforce. You can find Fund the People online at fundthepeople.org and follow us on Twitter at Fund the People. We're fiscally sponsored by community partners. If you're ever in need of an incubator for a nonprofit project, they're great, and you can find them at communitypartners.org. Today, I want to invite you to consider sponsoring this podcast. We're open to sponsorship from mission-aligned foundations, consulting practices, search firms, nonprofits, and businesses. If you're interested, email me, rusty at fundthepeople.org, or give me a call at 845 288 0176. Since this podcast is in its early days, I want to do something unusual here. I want to acknowledge not just our current supporters, but all the institutions that have ever provided grant support to fund the people since we began R&D through our residency at the NYU Wagner School in 2013. Here's all the funders that have ever supported fund the people with a grant. American Express, Annie E. Casey Foundation, R Foundation, Bush Foundation, David and Lucille Packard Foundation, Deutsche Bank Americas Foundation, Durfee Foundation, Evelyn and Walter Haas Jr. Fund, Ford Foundation, Kresge Foundation, Newman's Own Foundation, Public Welfare Foundation, Robert Sterling Clark Foundation, Tides Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Special double shout out to the team at the Kresge Foundation. They are the only funder that has supported Fund the People continuously with back-to-back grants since 2014. My sincere thanks to all these generous supporters for their investments in the work of Fund the People. All right, we are back, and I do. I'm aware you have other uh, commitments out there, so let's just try to take five more minutes or so, and um, which is obviously not enough time to cover <laughs> everything going on. But um, you do, in part two of this report, try to give an estimate uh, of what's happening with empl- nonprofit employment during the pandemic. And obviously it's still, unfortunately, hopefully it's not early days, but it feels like it's early days in terms of research about what's happened at least. Yeah. So we have uh, made an estimate of the scale of the cutbacks that have occurred. It's important to realize going into this that the nonprofit sector uh, financial base is very much impacted by two different sources of revenue. the major major sources. Uh, one of them is essentially commercial income. Uh, people pay for services. They may pay with their insurance card. They may pay with uh, tax benefits, but they pay for their services, and that's forty or fifty percent of the of the income. It's coming from households that are able to pay for nursing home care or for uh, daycare and so forth. And the other one is coming from local government. Um, it's often federal support that's channeled through local government, with local government kicking in some money, uh, matching money. Um, and we all know that the, in, that the virus has had an enormous impact on the budgets of local governments. They are terribly, terribly strained because they've had to take on the cost of this coronavirus and they have not gotten federal support for it. So the nonprofit sector is very heavily 
vulnerable because of these two sources of income. Uh, there is no way, realistically, that philanthropy can be expected to pick up the gap, even if given the foundations double their funding uh, through some magical means, it, it, it counts for 4% of the income of the sector. So this is, this is wonderful that foundations are helping, but we shouldn't kid ourselves about what is possible with foundation funding. It just is not of a scale that begins to touch what's happening out there in the sector. So what we do have is estimates, um, good data rather, on the share of the workforce in each of these fields that nonprofits represent. We have this data because we have this QCEW data, so we can actually track at least as of 2017, which is a whole other story. We need to get the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is doing this work now, to increase the number of years in which they are generating the data. Right now, they only give it to us every five years. Can you imagine that if you were the banking industry or the manufacturing industry or any other industry that the BLS would say, sorry, guys, come back to us in five years and we'll tell you whether your sector is growing or not. I mean, it's it's just criminal. Um, but that aside, we had 2017 data. We have an, a basis for estimating the share of the workforce. So we said, let us assume that the nonprofits lost employment in the same proportion that they represent of the employment base in each field. Uh, and remember, I found, mentioned before, that we had found that nonprofits tend to be resistant to these cuts. We just don't know whether that has held in this new era of the coronavirus. So our estimate may be a little high, um, but it's telling us that this is real, you know, that there's something going on out there. So based on these estimates, we, we came up with a figure of 1.6 million workers in the nonprofit sector that would have lost their jobs in the first three months of the pandemic. Uh, we were waiting for the July results to be issued, and we will probably put out a, an update uh, in early August when that becomes available. But clearly, these industries that nonprofits are involved in have been impacted by the coronavirus. Um, they have just not been able to keep their staffs in place. And it even extends into the hospital field. So there have been very, very significant um, losses of employment. I think education has been one of the striking ones. Um, social services outside of health, a little less extreme in the health field because i think we've put a lot of emphasis on health and right. but i mean uh, under the social assistance community food and housing services 91 percent. Right. i mean that's just stunning and given especially how much food and housing are at issue in the pandemic right. it's it's just kind of mind-blowing to think about yeah. that yeah uh, yeah, we, we estimate, you know, a half a million jobs in health, um, a quarter million in social assistance and, uh, you know, others in arts, entertainment, and recreation. So it's a, it's a significant cut, no question about it. And I think it's not getting better. I think it's probably getting worse. Uh, there was a slight increase in, um, in jobs in, in, I guess, June. And one of the dilemmas that everybody's having uh, in understanding what's going on is that we don't know quite how people are responding if they have been benefited by the payroll protection plan. You know, if, you, if you are not truly employed, but you're getting paid as if you were employed, how do you answer the question, are you employed? You say, oh, I'm back at work or I'm back employed i'm getting paid uh and so there was this increase in june but we're concerned that it was a bogus result and that the real result was different from that people were that some portion of those june numbers were people who um had gotten payroll protection so they said no they're employed because they're getting a payroll um right so they're employed. 
So, but these these are high numbers. Uh, July obviously was a downturn again in terms of employment, and uh, we are going to try to ferret out the same using the same technique, the estimate of nonprofit job losses. Mm. Yeah, I'm on a board of a congregation here in Beacon, New York, that got a PPP loan. And uh, I think it was, you know, $40,000 or something, a little bit above that. So for, you know, very small in scale by comparison to others. But, you know, it, it's helped us keep the staff employed. But, you know, depending what happens a few months from now, six months from now, even if the loan is forgiven, which is probably likely, uh, it, you know, we, we, it may not help in the long term. Uh, yeah. Well, we've been concerned that in the early stages of the payroll protection plan, that nonprofits, that the banks didn't understand that nonprofits were eligible because all the publicity about it talked about small business. Right. People are not, again, this is sort of the blind spot in our data systems that people are not understanding that what they're calling private small businesses, small businesses yeah. are frequently nonprofits. And so if a nonprofit came into the bank and applied for those loans, they probably had difficulty, at least in the first tranche of the loans. Uh, it was corrected later when smaller banks and community banks were brought into the program more actively. But these programs were using third-party entities, that is the commercial banking system, to deliver this assistance. And Nonprofits don't have established relationships with these banks, and therefore they didn't get into the line, into the queue, and taken seriously in the loan programs. Right. The only way our organization got the loan was that it had a relationship with its credit union, and the credit union mm -hmm. uh, made it pretty easy. Um, yeah, that was probably the second phase of the program. Then, I'm not. I'm not sure, but yeah, it could have been. I know that they, the Congress tried to do more in the second phase to make it a little more accessible. But yeah, I think in a webinar you and I were on, I don't know, a month or two ago, we were talking about how frustrating it is that even when policymakers understand the nonprofits, they, when they talk to the media, they don't. They were using the term small business and skipping over yeah. even talking about the nonprofits. So there's sort of a this tick or this this invisibility factor is like at multiple levels. It's in the data sets. Uh, it's also in the attitudes and the language and the media discourse. Right. right. Now, we have an enormous educational uh, challenge in front of us to make this workforce reality visible and understood by the American public. And the language that's used in the media is instrumental in keeping it obscure. And so the sector has to get smarter about making this point, you know, that uh, this small business in these data includes nonprofits and in some fields, we're the dominant player. You know, if there's a 30% increase in health employment, as there has been, and nonprofits are 60, 70% of that, that's a really important point. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's rarely reported in a way that makes that clear. Well, I want to thank you for your important work over decades of of enabling us to make that argument with data to back it up. Um, so, you know, thank you and your colleagues uh, for everything you've done. Um, and oh, thank you today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to take part in this series, and I wish you well with it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, with that, I'll let you go, and um, I hope folks will get the report. We'll share information about NVSQ, ISTAR, the Johns Hopkins Center for Civil Society Studies, and this report on the show page. And um, uh, hope folks will. If check I can it say, out. if I can make one other point, I think you were going to ask if we had time about some of the stuff on our web, uh, on our oh yeah website. Please. So we have created an interactive website that allows anybody anywhere in the country to go on and get access to the most up-to-date data that we have on nonprofit employment by field, by county, by uh, metropolitan area, by state. You can configure the data any way you want. You can produce graphs. You can play uh, 
various kinds of charts or tables. It's a very useful device and we are we have updated it. We're going to launch the update probably right around Labor Day. So, and there's a new interactive um, uh, piece for this the, the pandemic estimates as well, right? People can go on and get the estimates for their states. I think we certainly can. You, there certainly is material on our website uh, for that, and that's at uh, I never remember my own website. Sadly, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> that's okay. We'll we'll get it uh, and put it in. I think it's ccs.jhu.edu, ccss.jhu.edu. I can confirm that from the cover of your report. Ah, good. So so that's uh, ccss.jhu.edu. And I can personally vouch for that, that database I've used. And there's a free version and a paid version, but it's very affordable. I think it's 10 bucks. Or something, and I've used that for presentations when I wanted to show what the nonprofit workforce looks like in Chicago or Illinois or um, things like that. So I, I definitely encourage people to to use that. Um, and there's other things other than this nonprofit economic data project up at the uh, on the site. There's other interesting research that the center does. So yes, absolutely. All right, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to Fund the People, a podcast with me, Rusty Stahl, where we amplify how and why philanthropy should support the nonprofit workforce. For links to the resources that were mentioned in this episode, check out our show notes and more at fundthepeople.org backslash podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you enjoyed the episode or you're a regular listener, please share the podcast with your network or at least with one or two colleagues who you believe would find it valuable. Thanks for all you do every day for our community and our country through your nonprofit work. Stick with it, keep your tank full, and take care of one another.